0: Hello and welcome to Critical To Your Success. Thanks for joining me. I am your host, Rachel Park. I'm a critical care nurse, academic and researcher from Auckland, New Zealand. This is the podcast where I talk to critical care nurses, allied healthcare team members and academics about what has been critical to their success. I do hope you've been enjoying the episode so far. This is episode number 18 recorded in April 2020, and today I talk with Professor Andrew Jell. This interview was recorded um, by video call, and we did have a bit of an issue with an echo halfway through. Professor Andrew Jell is a registered nurse and clinical epidemiologist at the University of Auckland School of Nursing, as well as a senior research fellow at the National Institute for Health Innovation. Andrew has authored book chapters on evidence-based practice and taught evidence-based nursing since 1999. He's co-editor of Evidence-Based Nursing and is an editor of the Cochrane Wounds Review Group. He has led or been involved in the development of three New Zealand clinical guidelines, four Cochrane systematic reviews and was the clinical advisor on the Health Quality and Safety Committee project to improve pressure injury management in New Zealand. He has published more than 150 publications, is highly cited, and has an international reputation for the quality of his work in Venus ulcers. In this episode we talk about developing a body of evidence, being persistent, what we think nursing research is, and why nurses make good researchers, what it takes to do research, and how important it is to conduct ethical research. He also talks about being curious and thinking of what the next question is, no matter whether this is to do with research or life in general. Sage advice. So grab a cuppa, sit back and have a listen to the interview with Andrew Jull. Hello, (laughs) welcome. Um, This morning I'm talking with Professor Andrew Jull. Andrew is a professor in the School of Nursing at the University of Auckland. And for some of you who are listening to and watching this recording, um, you will also know him well from the N782, the Postgraduate Research Methods in Nursing and Health paper. And so, what we thought we would do today is have a bit of a chat about Andrew's experience with research. Uh, how he's got to where he is, and a few tips and tricks really for those who are getting into research or seriously considering undertaking their own research. We're also going to have this available as a podcast later on, so um, feel free to join in and have a listen to that. So Andrew, I thought we'd start with um, a little bit about your background really. So you You know, you won't be known to everybody. Um, Do you want to tell us a little bit about how you got into nursing um, in the first place? Did you go straight from school? Did you do other jobs in between?
1: Um, Yeah, so um, I did do other jobs in between. Um, I had a suite of jobs, a lot of part-time work um, and service work commercial cleaning, um, telephone answering service, um, that kind of work. But that was really to supplement um, the, what I saw as the mainstay of what I was doing prior to nursing. Um, I'd start, started university in 1980 um, and then uh, dropped out 1981, um, just prior to the Springbok tour starting in New Zealand. And I was heavily involved in activism and got quite involved in student politics between uh, 1981 and 84 working (coughs) at the university and at carrington uh, tech students association which is now uh, unitech and i'd been heavily involved in supporting um, uh, feminism and uh, working um, around um, sexism issues. Um, and so I knew some nurses, um, but uh, it wasn't until about 1984, 85, that I considered nursing as an option, and it was something of a political act, actually, um, to for a man to take on nursing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, strangely, at the same time, a number of uh, women that I knew who'd been involved in feminism also, uh, completely independently and unbeknownst to me, um, applied and also got into nursing. Um, <laughs> so it was um, it was almost synchronicity at play. Mm. Um, so that was in the mid-80s. And
0: did you train at um, Carrington Tech in those days? or?
1: No, I trained at what was then um, Auckland Technical Institute, which right. became Auckland Institute of Technology and then Auckland University of Technology, um, now AUT.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and I trained at the Akaranga campus. they just moved there a couple of years beforehand, um, uh, around 83, 84, I think. Mm, mm,
0: based on the shore?
1: Yes, yes. Yeah.
0: And so you did your training, um, you'd taken into it this suite of skills that were perfect for nursing by the sounds of it, so you could clean, you could answer phones, and you're an activist or advocate for our patients. What did you do once you finished your training? Where did you head to?
1: Um, So I probably in my third year um, really fixed on um, an area. I, I worked in um, ward 8B at Auckland Hospital and um, that was a ward that would had been recently set up. Um, it was an orthopaedic ward, it was led by um, Leonie Hatton and um, she was a very innovative charge nurse and it had a lovely young team um, with some really experienced people as well and they were doing primary nursing and it was just um, a fantastic place to work in. Um, the team all got on well together. The kind of nursing that we were doing was um, a, a mix of um, trauma. Uh, young young men usually with uh, tib-fibs or shaft of femur fractures, often associated with sports and motorcycles. Um, yep. There'd be um, a bunch of spinal patients coming through before they uh, moved to the um, spinal unit. Um, those were in the days when rugby was a um a main creator of um cervical trauma um and uh i did um a stint there in my third year and then uh, spent six weeks there in pre as my pre reg elective and um, just loved it um mm-hmm. you know the the mix of young people and and um older people as well um with mm-hmm. the neck of femur fractures um, and um, also the servicemen who were coming through for um, joint replacements, um, mm. probably the last of the generation to look after servicemen from World War II. Mm. and um, you know it was f- it was fantastic to um, s- to work with that mix of people and that mix of staff.
0: Mm. Mm. And then moved into what sort of area after that?
1: Right. Well, -hmm. um, unfortunately, um, 8B um, was a victim of um, the Uh, Harold Titter reforms. (laughs) um, And it was shut down along with the emergency department in Green Lane and a whole bunch of other Mm -hmm. uh, areas. Um, And uh, I had to find a new place. And... um, another um, nurse was working with the resource team and um, she persuaded me that that was a great place to go to Mm -hmm. because you went everywhere and indeed you did Um, and so i um, worked for a number of years uh, with the resource team before becoming one of the first um, clinical nurse advisors for Mm -hmm. surgical services and then a clinical nurse consultant for general surgery
0: Did you also spend some time in the ICU? Well, <laughs>
1: as I, as part of working in the research team, yes, I did. Um, yeah. And um, was lucky enough to be involved in caring for um, the patient, uh, a vegetative patient who was in um, critical care at Auckland for a long time, who was the subject of the. Um, uh, case uh, that established that with vegetative patients it was not a criminal act to turn off the ventilator Um, and um, that was a a very tragic time um, and I remember those people well but I also um, was in and out of um, DCC there for a while um, and uh, remember a lot of the staff from that time.
2: <laughs> mm.
0: So you've also obviously moved into the academic realm. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how that came about? How you started down the track of, um, you know, undertaking your PhD and working at the university.
1: Yeah, I'm not one for planning career moves. Um, in in as much as having uh, a An a job that I'm aiming for and um, aiming to get. I'm much more a person who has thought, I need to be ready for opportunities. Um, And it was very clear um, from the early 90s that um, extra education was necessary for that. Because I'd already started my bachelor's degree, I was able to transfer that to Massey University and start Doing some work at Massey. Um, But things moved a lot faster than I was able to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, new grads were coming out with degrees and heading Mm -hmm. into master's degrees. And here was me still two thirds of the way through a bachelor's degree with another seven papers to go. And that was going to take me, you know, seven years. And I was feeling like I was way behind the eight ball. Um, So I approached Massey to say, look, could I upgrade to a master's degree and they said no um and then i approached victoria university who'd relatively recently started doing a master's in nursing Mm
2: -hmm. um,
1: and um said would they take me on board even though i didn't have a bachelor's degree and they said yes and um that really started me on the trajectory i'd always known since i'd first started university that i wanted to do research it just there was a click.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: and I'm a weird kind of person in that I love um, writing essays. Um, and so the joy at university and indeed um, at school prior to that um, was writing what I thought of as um, uh, good essays. And um, That in itself is a research activity. In order to write an essay, you've got to know something about the topic you're writing about. And so, you know, I invested lots of time in learning how to synthesize information and translate that into, um, you know, 1500 words or so. Yeah. Um, So, Vic took me on, um, and um, I did. One paper there, I can't exactly remember the name, but it was an evidence-based practice paper. I probably did that about 1996, 97, um, and absolutely adored it. Um, And at the time, uh, was leading wound management at um, Auckland Hospital. And... Was involved in a contract being renegotiated, a supply contract for dressings, um, as a as an expert advisor. Although I didn't feel particularly expert, but um,
0: <laughs> someone thought you were. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um,
1: it, which is, you know, pretty much uh, defines my career, really. Um, and um, I'd. As a consequence of that, Smith and Nephew um, wanted to take a bunch of nurses um, from New Zealand to a Wound Conference in the UK. Um, and Auckland Hospital said yes, but only if that's not tied to any decisions around the contract. And, you know, Smith and Nephew mm-hmm. said, yeah, yes, yeah, that's, that's fine. <laughs> of course not. Um, Exactly. Um, and in fact, they didn't get the contract, but, you know, that's by the by. Um, and it was at that conference that I met um, Nikki Cullum, who was then a reader in um, York University, um, and which is a, a kind of an associate professor role, although it's more less teaching focused, more research focused. Mm. Um, And the the notion of being a reader, just, I loved that concept, (laughs) Um, but you know, it wasn't to be. Um, And so Nikki had been um, instrumental in helping start up the Cochrane Collaboration with Ian Chalmers, Um, and uh, so this was ninety-seven, ninety-eight. 98. They formed a wounds review group within Cochrane. Nikki was leading that. And she asked me to be the criticisms editor and then later asked me to be an editor. Um, And um, then that led to all sorts of things. I mean, she was one of the first co-editors of Evidence-Based Nursing. When she uh, decided to pull out of that, Um, she asked me to be the co-editor of Evidence-Based Nursing um which i did for seven years or so um and meanwhile she was doing trials um and did the um, first trials in venous leg ulcer management and because i was tied up in wounds and guidelines in the late 90s were becoming um quite the thing The ministry was supporting um, staff to uh, get log guidelines training. Um, The Director of Nursing, Mia Carroll, at the time uh, nominated myself and a few other people to go to that. And so we tootled down to Wellington for a a few days to learn how to do guidelines. And then Mia set me the task of, Andrew, find a guideline and do it. (laughs) Or rather, find a topic and do the guideline. Um, And what was clear from the guidelines training was that there needed to be a body of evidence. And within wound management, there's not a lot of strong, high quality evidence. But within the area of wound management, um, venous leg ulcers had the strongest body of evidence. And so um, I undertook to do a guideline that became the New Zealand guideline for managing um, leg ulcers. Mm -hmm. and completed that in 1999 Um, and as part of that had done a systematic review that was published in Cochrane um, in uh, also 1999 that was also my master's thesis and you know that kind of just set me on the trajectory. Mm. And the the professor that was teaching the evidence based practice paper was a um, a midwife out of Newcastle University, Marilyn Forer, um, and she um, said to me, "You've got to get a research, you've got to get into research," um, and uh, I think Marilyn actually sent me notice and. 2000, maybe 2001, of 2000 it would have been, of something called the Foxley Fellowship, which was an Mm -hmm. HRC um, research award for people in clinical to take a year out to do some research. And as part of the guideline, I'd developed a number of relationships with people at the Clinical Trials Research Unit at um, the University of Auckland. Um, In particular, Natalie Walker, who was doing the Auckland Legos study at the time. and um, uh, I used that opportunity, she had some data that needed analysing, and so I used that as the basis for applying for a Foxley Fellowship, which I was awarded in, in 2000, which gave me a year out in 2002. And the person who, whose name I've forgotten, which is most unfortunate, um, who, who was took over from me as the director of nursing at Auckland Hospital, um, kind of just said, go, go, do what you need to do. And it, it kind of epitomized that um, really important management role that you know you see really good managers do which is they think of their job is not to retain their existing staff but rather to grow their staff into their next job and so she just said go and grow and it's
2: amazing yeah
1: yeah yeah and so i did um everything possible to stay at CTRU. One of the um, research fellows there, and I, I, I was a research fellow, or rather the HRC Foxley fellow, I was called. Mm. Um,
0: <laughs> um, it goes with your background. <laughs> indeed.
1: Um, and um, one of the researchers there said to me, look, get your hands into everything. Just mm. become indispensable. Just learn, learn, learn. And I really took that to heart. I got involved in all sorts of things, um, but not the least of which was uh, I wrote a grant application for a trial in uh, 2000, um, which had failed uh, to get through um, the HRC grant processes, but I wrote another one in 2002 as part of this research fellowship. And um, that's... That was successful.
0: <laughs>
1: In fact, that year, it was one of only two projects at CTRU that was successful.
0: Fantastic.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, what I'd learned from my master's degree was that my family pays the price mm. if I study. You know, you have to take time out which meant every Sunday they left the house in order to leave me in peace because I, you know, had two young children um, and my wife was able to take them away and um, I was able to work solidly for the entire day to do, you know, for four years, my master's degree. Mm. And I, I swore that if I was to do a PhD and, you know, everybody was pushing me to do it, um, that I would only do it if... I was paid to do it, and so this research project, in combination with the University of Auckland Senior Health Research Scholarship, paid me salary to do my PhD. Mm. And um, then I kept on getting, res- you know, grants. Um, I think I got another one in two, th- another two in two thousand and five, um, another one in. 2006, another one in 2007, uh, 2010, 2014, mm-hmm. 2016, 2018. Um, yes, yeah, so I, I just kept on growing it. And, um, but you know, back in when I was doing my master's, what was really, really clear for me was that there weren't nurses doing quantitative research. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody was doing qualitative projects for their master's thesis and I was the only one that was doing quant. I even got challenged. Um, the, <laughs> some people there said to me, well, oh, you sure what you're doing is nursing research? Yeah. And that, well, that opened up a whole new question for me. Um, but yeah, I, I saw quant was needed. Nurses with skills in quant was needed. I mm-hmm. thought hey, look, there's lots of doctors out there doing research without a PhD. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do research, and if I can, I'll get a PhD, but I'm going to do it without having to get a PhD. I'm not going to buy into this notion that you have to be a PhD qualified to be an independent researcher, which is, you know, line yourself up with somebody and then you know, do their work and do your PhD in their work and then try and do your postdoc to build mm. some independence. Uh, that's just not the way I, I wanted to work. And I don't see that it, that's necessary to work that way um, in health research. Yeah. It it might be more important to work that way in bench sciences, but not certainly not in health research. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> so that's how I got to where I am.
0: Yeah, well, I think the point you raise about you know what is nursing research, <laughs> and we've debated this in the past. I was um, doing my PhD, and you were my supervisor. Um, is really important because it is very different for a lot of people, and there's a lot of um, different ideas around what nursing research is. So, if you were to try and define nursing research, or dis- maybe not define, but maybe describe nursing research, what would you suggest?
1: Oh, you're throwing me a real curly one there. (laughs) Um, I'm not convinced there's such a thing as nursing research. Um, I think there's a great beast called health research. Um, And players in health pick from different disciplines information that provides them with the data they need in order to do their work. So, you know, if you want to know about the accuracy of um, infrared thermometry, um, that might've been work that's done by a medical practitioner um, in combination with statisticians. And yet it's, en- it's entirely relevant to nursing, mm-hmm. um, just as it is relevant to medicine. Um, so, and, and, you know, I do work um, my first systematic review was of a drug for uh, venous leg ulcers. And strangely, it didn't get included in a number of nursing guidelines for managing venous leg ulcers because prescribing in those countries was limited to mm-hmm. doctors. And the target audience for the guidelines were nurses. Yeah. Whereas I think, you know, everybody needs to know about pentoxifling for treating venous leg ulcers. Yes, in some countries, nurses might not be able to prescribe, but that doesn't preclude the necessity to know about it in order to advocate for the prescribing of the drug.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: you know, so I'm I can't define nursing research. Um, I've tried, I've, yeah. Um, and no matter how I try and define it, I cannot find something that is a unique pocket that mm. you call nursing research. So yes. I kind of sidestep the whole issue and call the whole bucket health research mm. um, and take f- what I need from wherever I need it, whoever yeah. produces it. And I would expect people to do the same of my work. Um, you know, some of it's drug-based and some of it is um, device-based. And whoever, You know, the target audience are are people who manage venous leg ulcers because that's Mm. the body of my work. Um, Not a discipline.
0: No, exactly. No matter what sort of clinician they are and what area they're working in. And yeah, yeah. So why do nurses make good researchers? Because I believe they do. I think they're excellent researchers.
1: Because they're so practical. Mm. Um, And... You know, it's the old, well, it's sort of an adage, if you want something done, ask a nurse. Mm. Um, And I see it all too often in my work. Um, You know, people really underestimate the amount of work that goes into achieving what they might see as something small, the development of a chart or the like. Um, And they just say, well, do it, do it, and expect it to be done in a week. And, uh, you know, it takes you a year because the practicalities of doing a lot of our work involve a lot of relationships with a whole bunch of members of the crew, you know, the healthcare team. Um, And all all the work we do is grounded in those negotiated relationships. If you can't bring other people on board, then the work won't get done. And I think that's why nurses are really good at doing research, is that they are really good at problem solving,
2: mm. they
1: are really good at relationships mm-hmm. um, and
0: they're very practical. Yeah.
1: And why wouldn't you ask nurses to do research?
0: Well, I think that's the thing, because like you say, you know, nurses are um, very well placed to try, and nurses want to know the answers you know we're always questioning our practice we're always whether it's something that's worked well or not worked well we want to know why um so how do we go about trying to answer those sorts of questions that we have in the bed space how do we sort of take a step back initially and identify a problem
1: um another question
2: today
1: <laughs> yeah yeah well i think the first thing to do is to identify whether other people have addressed that question um, you know i'm am a big fan of trying to live a good life and by a good life what i mean is an ethical life mm-hmm. um and to keep repeating the same piece of research when somebody else has already found the answer is unethical. It's unethical to experiment on human beings when you know the answer, and it's a misuse of resources when the answer Mm -hmm. is already known. So I think the first starting point must always be, do we already know the answer to this question? Um, And if the answer to that is no, Then you know you've got an evidence gap and you can scope a project to addressing that gap. But if the answer is yes or yes-ish, um, you know, these days um hopefully a lot of the questions are addressed by systematic reviews. Um, but it might be that you've you know you've got a topic with a gap where people have done studies but nobody's summarized the studies. So there's still a gap which is What does the summary of the evidence tell us? Um, And that in itself is um, a research project, albeit using secondary sources rather than primary uh, research. But it always starts with, has somebody else answered the question first? And if somebody has, then to my way of thinking, it's important for us to uh, go, okay, can i use this evidence and mm. what's really important there is is there a reason i shouldn't use this evidence mm. uh, i think all too often we're quick to reject other people's work because um you know we find reasons to reject it rather than reasons to use it it's almost mm. like we're hardwired not to change mm. <laughs> um so i try and flip it around and think okay well you know Is there a reason not to use this work? And it might be, you know, that the population um, that the research has been done with is mostly men. Are we sufficiently different with respect to this treatment that we couldn't also apply the treatment to a population that is um, mostly or um, at least half women? Mm -hmm. You know, so those are reasons to have discussions about whether we should use the work or not, rather than reason to reject.
0: So as part of the, um, you know, sort of planning and designing of any study, we always start with a a literature review, don't we? And like you say, it's not just to see what's been done and whether the question's been answered or not, but in terms of that whole critiquing and synthesising of the literature to see whether it is actually the right answer or not um you talked sorry you go no no
1: no i was i was just going to go i agree
0: yeah thank you um you said about whether the and i can't recall what you said but um in terms of whether the literature answered the question well or wellish um Tell me about wellish or good enough. <laughs> and how can you use that to your advantage if you're thinking of, you know, designing a master's project or a PhD project or a research project in your area? How can you use somebody else's research to sort of help you out?
1: Okay. Um, in all sorts of different ways. Um, first up... Um, Let's talk about the difference between a master's project and a PhD project. So a master's project is to help the student learn the process. Um, so I think replication is really important as part of that process. Um, it, it doesn't mean that it is a, a complete repeat of um, somebody's work. You know, I mean, it's replication in a different setting often or with a different population, um, but replication all the same and to, to grow the student into then the PhD process, which is to contribute original knowledge. Mm. But in what is common to both those processes is that in doing the review prior to conducting the work, you will come across studies of varying quality. Mm. And the studies that you believe to be good quality, I think are the ones that you want to um, A, replicate, and B, use as your roadmap. Mm. And I think that in in all sorts of different ways. Um, Think about how you could replicate that study in your setting and plan that out, um, is is one kind of uh, roadmap. Um, But also, you know, just simply, when it comes to writing it up, you mm. thought this was a good paper. Why don't you write it up like this? Mm. You know, it's not mm. plagiarism to use somebody else's approach to writing something mm. up. Um, you know, if they've got two tables and a figure, why not use two tables and a figure? Um, yeah. If they've got a very short introduction, why not have a short introduction? If they use an active voice rather than a passive voice, which is you know, largely dictated by journals, then use an active voice. Mm. So, and, you know, if they use a structured discussion that starts with key messages, comparisons with other literature, and then strengths and weaknesses before uh, clinical implications or conclusion, um, do that. You know, yeah. I think there's all sorts of different ways in which we can use other people's work to help ourselves become better. And, you know, the, when you're doing a literature review, you're doing an awful amount of reading. Um, mm. and hopefully, a lot of critical reading. Um, but I think the the process of reading is really useful if it is used to instruct writing. Mm. Um, and, you know, there's, there's much that you can see if you're guided by, um, you know, uh, good supervisors within a paper, because the supervisors will see the traps that have been sidestepped um, mm-hmm. or avoided, as well as what's obviously on the page. Mm-hmm. Um, and but it all comes back to, you know, plan, 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 plan.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: That, I mean that's a, that's a critical factor in terms of the success of a project. And I think most people underestimate, and I mentioned that before, you know, when you're told to go away and do something, people expect it to happen in a week. Um, no. No. Um, you know, you'll know from your own experience how much planning goes into a project. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think of the project I've got, what's well, sort of running at the moment, <laughs> suspended as a consequence of COVID-19. Yeah. Um, you know, I first started... Planning that project in 2016, when I did a systematic review that I then published, that lay the groundwork for um, doing um, uh, the doing uh, writing an application for a trial and. Um, uh, Then I wrote the application in 2018, Um, and at that stage, you know, you have to have your head around how you're going to do this. So you're doing planning, and a lot of that can be translated then into a protocol, um, Mm -hmm. which is a more detailed roadmap. Um, But the, um, you know, you don't know until, or we don't find out until a year later um whether you've got the grant. And so 2019, yes, I get the grant. Now I can start writing the protocol
2: mm. and then
1: do, you know, um sort of six months of development work leading up to starting in February of this year. Um, mm. So you know, four years really of not constantly planning, but you know, a, a very organized approach to making this happen. Yeah. Um,
0: and it takes a lot of time doesn't it you know
1: it does it does
0: <laughs> yes um
1: and sorry i've got distractions going on around me at the moment That's all right <laughs> Can you? thank you um
0: so in terms of the planning and we talk about you know probably we're going to write some sort of study protocol aren't we and what does that help us do along the way in terms of sort of crystallising our thoughts um, and our approach to our approach?
1: Yeah, so a protocol, um, I, I think a protocol is useful for any project no matter what the size of the project um, and no matter what the approach to the project. You know, I've written a protocol for a qualitative study as well as so I wrote protocols for quantitative studies. And you know, another way you could describe them as a project outline, you know, they're still protocols. And I, I, you know, you always, unfortunately, um, when especially when you're starting out, you get the experience after you need it. And that's why I think it's useful that people you know, identify a good project that they want to emulate, if not replicate. Mm. A PhD project will emulate something in terms of the features of the project, but the actual question might be very, very different. Mm. Um, As opposed to a master's project, which will be more a a project of replication. Um, So that protocol process, You know, in a proposal, you lay out the rationale for doing a project. You lay out what the research question is, and you might put a smidgen of energy into the actual design itself. But the protocol flips that around and puts much more attention on the how rather than the why. Um, Mm. And, and, you know, the why can be simply a page in a protocol or a couple of pages, whereas the how is the body Mm. of the work. Um, starting with the research question and hypotheses, if they are appropriate, and then really detailing the method about how you're going to, for instance, recruit the sample. Mm. Um, and um, you know going into quite a lot of detail around that, and then what your outcome measures are, and for each outcome measure, what tool you're going to use to collect that information. You know, it might not be that you're using a questionnaire, You might, you might. And, you know, hopefully a validated questionnaire. But, you know, we're still always using other tools as well. Are you, If you're collecting blood pressure, are you going to use, are you going to use um, a manual SPIGMO or are you going to use an automated SPIGMO? These are, you know, really thinking in fine detail about everything you're going to do. And it forces you to... Um, have a very very clear picture of how you think your project will work out. Now that doesn't Mm -hmm. mean you won't encounter problems when it actually comes to operationalizing that protocol. You do and you then have to kind of rethink things and what have you because you suddenly find out oh, those aren't available anymore or um, uh, you know there'll be other roadblocks that you just won't anticipate and Mm You know, like a
0: pandemic.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: exactly. Mm. Um, who'd ever think I'd, I'd be starting a trial and then having to suspend it five patients in? Yeah. Um, you know, but there we are. I mm. uh, certainly didn't foresee that one. Um, so I
0: guess it makes us as researchers think about all those details, and then it gives all the detail to anyone else who comes along and reads our protocol, and knows exactly what we've done and how we've done
1: it yeah absolutely and these days you know particularly with trials public protocols are published Mm. um and so they are very transparent processes Mm. and and there's a lot of processes around trials now that require transparency you know there's trials Mm. registration um there's posting of results post-registration there's um, publication of the protocol, publication of the sti- st- statistical analysis plan, mm. um, uh, sharing data sets. You know, there's all sorts of different ways in which um, we make it really transparent because yeah. the credibility of science is dependent on transparency. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, none of us um, want to be wrong,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, but. And, and all of us want to be credible. There are a few people out there who commit fraud, scientific fraud. And um, unfortunately, um, that reflects on the rest of us and should be a lesson in you know, um, how, how to behave how to lead that good life. You know, obviously, have been um, fraudulent studies, um, and they've had a lot of impact on not only the perpetrators of the frauds, but um, have misled the scientific community for a long time. And and a number of these are um, around trials um, that have been ultimately retracted um, because people have made up the data instead of actually Conducting the study and collecting the data. Um, so it's really behoves us as researchers to be as transparent as possible. And that's why a protocol is really useful. It's one step in maintaining that transparency. That, mm-hmm. um, you know, with trials also is lined up with trials registration and publication of a sti- statistical analysis plan and
2: data sharing. Yeah, yeah.
0: And a lot like was. With- mentioning before you know there's a lot more in terms of that happening these days and you know sort of behoves all of us to make sure that we're up to date with what needs to be done and um, particularly around our ethical obligations and making sure all our approvals are in place um, before we start to do anything.
1: Absolutely Um, it's you know and, and that's part of the planning process that's why planning takes so long you know what once you've written a protocol you know at, you can then write an ethics application um and that takes a bit of time but in parallel you also have to get approvals from the local organizations where you're collecting the information or recruiting participants from and if you're like me and you do that across multiple centers then you know that's multiple applications mm-hmm. um and So yes, people shouldn't underestimate the amount of time it takes to start a research project. And I'd say an easy um, rule of thumb would be, allow for 25% of the time um, that you, when you first start doing a project, to be actually planning and development. Um, And if it consumes 30%, well, that's just as likely as 25%, frankly.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Never underestimate the amount But plan, 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 plan. Plan, plan, plan. plan. And read, read, read. Write, write, write.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, you know, you'll get a sense by now if you're... Um, how much writing is involved in a project? Writing applications left, right, and centre starts with a proposal, which involves a literature review. Um, it's uh, then develops into a protocol, um, and you know, for a master's project, that can be quite a short protocol—five pages or so. Um, but uh, that then evolves into ethics applications um, and applications at the. For um, Māori research approval and for um, local organisational uh, research approvals. Um, and then, you know, particularly as a student, um, you can push those into your method sections and writing up your um, project. But yes, right, right, right. It's a muscle that needs constant use. Mm. And there's plenty of opportunity to use it as a researcher.
0: Yeah. And it's that developing all those academic writing skills as well, isn't it? Which, you know, if you're using it for your master's or um, a PhD, but also it's a really good way of writing your study protocol and seeing it as an academic exercise.
1: Yeah. Um, although I'd I, I use the term academic cautiously. Mm, I, academic. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> I, mean I, I think academic really... Um, is about the um, process that one goes through, um, perhaps, and the place of one's employment. But too frequently people use it as a um, synonym for the type of language that should be used. And I really reject that view. Um, I think that... It behooves us to be transparent, not only in our processes, but in our writing. And if there's anything that um, removes clarity of what we're trying to communicate, then it's the use of what's known as academic language, <laughs> yeah. where you try and complicate your language. And, you know, it, it means not using terms like utilize instead of use. Mm. Um, if we should be writing for clarity, I remember um, Richard Smith when I was editing um, for Evidence Based Nursing, um, which was a publication co-owned by BMJ Publishing and by um, uh, uh, RCN in the UK. Um, Richard Smith was the managing editor for BMJ Publishing, and the Lee and the editor of BMJ, and he said he. BMJ should be written as if it's the women's weekly of medicine. And what he was meaning there was really short, clear messages, lots of tables and figures, and, you know, in other words, pictures, Mm. um, and clarity. Mm. Um, And he, you know, It's expanded since then, but his word limit for research projects was 2,500 words, which was bloody hard to achieve. And every word has to contribute meaning when you've got that sort of word limit. You cannot muck round with third person. It has to be active. It cannot be passive voice. Um, You know, it, it really, really emphasises the necessity for concision. And I'm a big fan of concision when it comes to writing um, for research.
0: Mm, mm. And again, using other people's examples. So looking at how people have written um, and structuring your own work in a similar fashion is a really good way to go, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Um, I, it's
2: it's how I've um,
1: And I, I remember... Um, when I was a research fellow, um, I'd come in late to a writing clinic. And in these clinics, we there was a group of researchers that sat around the table and um, would review the piece of work being presented. Um, and so there was a period of time where you were rapidly reading the project. Um, and then, a, 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 you know, 30 minutes or so where you'd give feedback about the project. Um, And the the intent is to make it more publishable and to make the experience of the reader better. Um, And I'd come in late to that and um, picked up my copy and sat down and flicked straight to the table of uh, results, was looking at that, then moved back to the abstract, was looking at that, and then read the methods section. And... uh, A colleague of mine clearly had noted what I was doing and said to me afterwards, you're just so like X, who was the boss of the unit and my supervisor, or one of my supervisors. And at that point, I knew I'd been trained. Because, yeah, I I did exactly what Anthony would do. He'd go to the abstract, he'd look at the table of results, he'd look at the methods, and then, you know, he'd give uh, not a really miniature view of his points, he'd give the big picture. And I'm a big fan of looking at things from the big picture. I'm not, I'm less, you know, I do get a bit nitpicky about grammar and spelling and all that sort of drama, but only because it, it deflects me from the experience of reading. Um, I bleed every time I see these things. Kind of, they kind of annoy me. But that's because they take me away from the experience of understanding what the researcher has done and what they're trying to communicate. And so I try to think in terms of the big picture, the messages that are important that come out of this work and how it can be improved. When I read something, I try and stand in the stead of the person who is going to read it as a published paper. Um, I think, you know, I feel sorry it's, it's, for them. <laughs> Well, um, yeah, okay. Well, sometimes yes. it's it's you know, particularly as people are getting experience, it's tedious. Um, but you know, I do see that that's that's part of the role as in growing people in their uh, ability to write for audiences mm. other than markers, is to um, you know really put myself in the place of that person who will be reading it who won't you know who may be a professional but won't necessarily be as informed as the person who's writing about it you know it's remarkable even i do it you know i i put something on paper that is clear to me because i know all the steps involved mm. and when a, a a less informed reader comes to the, the piece of information that goes to you know what
0: yeah yeah you've just what did you do steps. to get
1: from there to there
0: exactly uh, we're step two i can see step one and step three but we're step two. <laughs> ex- exactly
1: exactly yeah. and yeah. you know that, that's that's why it's really useful to have other people read your work mm. um, and you know sure there's certainly when you start getting people to do that Um, you can feel quite defensive about your work. Um, And you're often, I I don't know if this for myself, often my experience was that people would give me critique, and they mean it as best intention critique. And, you know, I'd start then pushing back on the critique. Instead, what I need to do is just sit back, listen, And think, do I need to accept this critique or can I just let it go over my shoulder? Mm
2: -hmm. Because
1: it's not really important. And I think that's the thing to learn, is to listen Mm -hmm. to critique. Um, And, you know, that happens in all sorts of different ways. You know, when I get a paperback from a journal um, where they haven't said, rah, rah, we're going to take it immediately, (laughs) which is not a common occurrence... (laughs)
0: How
2: often do you get
1: those? Um, yeah, I think I've had it once or twice. Um, but that's out of 120 publications, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the more commonly you get feedback. And again, I still have that sort of visceral response, which is, oh,
0: you idiots! What don't you get about this? (laughs)
1: Exactly, exactly. But what I do, I mean I never act on that. What I do is I just, you know, virtually I put it aside Mm. for a couple of days and then go back to it and just Mm. let things settle and get more of a perspective on it. And then it's literally like putting it in a desk drawer and just leaving it for a while until you're ready to listen.
0: And you've stopped levitating a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> but I think it comes back to the whole um, idea that you know to do research, you have to have this passion for it. You spend so much time and energy on it, you get so invested in it um, that when you do get feedback that might not be hundred percent perfect, um, you do tend to take it very personally because that is your baby. It's you know it's probably more important to you than your children, your pets, or your significant <laughs> other at that point in time. So we do tend to take it very personally.
1: Oh, yes. And, you know, sure, there needs to be a cooling off period and you've got to let mm-hmm. off some steam. So the amount of vituperation that comes out, you know, is in the first instance quite mm-hmm. a lot. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, yeah. it's, 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 swearing is a nice release. But mm-hmm. you don't act on that. You do no. stick it in a drawer and, and wait for yourself to settle and be ready to listen yeah and sure some of the information can be um, of no value whatsoever and you don't have to take that on board you can literally let it go of your shoulder um, and you can go back to you know the um, editors and say "I disagree mm. um, that's not a problem. Um, but and you have to have seeing, a rationale for saying
0: that. Yeah, exactly. And it's seeing the value in some of the other feedback as well, and that actually it's there to strengthen your paper, your proposal, um, your research, and just kind of sifting it out a bit, isn't
1: it? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, most reviewers um, do this, you know, it's a voluntary activity, they're not paid for mm. it, and they do this with the best of intentions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Occasionally, you get somebody who clearly doesn't know what they're talking about. Um, but usually, people do uh, have a good grasp of what's going on. And I think, you know, if, if they don't get something, they're signaled that you haven't communicated something. Mm. And so it's
2: uh,
1: it, it's the obligation of the researcher um, to think, Okay, what do I need to change in this Mm. to make it clearer to Mm. the reader? Um, So, yeah, you're always writing, you're always getting um, critical feedback. Um, You start from a place of vulnerability, you kind of stay in that place of vulnerability, but you've got to learn to manage that vulnerability.
0: I guess one of the um, sort of final things to talk about was, and you spoke earlier on about developing collaborations and, you know, some of the other people that might be involved. So, research, I mean, research to me is a team sport. It's something that you really can't do in isolation by yourself. How do you develop a team around you um, in order to get you to the finish line and undertake your research along the way?
1: Well, at different times in my career, that's had um, there've been different things that I've needed. Um, But always, what I'm thinking about is what skills do I have and what skills do I not have, and it's the skills that I don't have that I need other people to bring to the table. So I'm not necessarily thinking about who to work with. I'm rather thinking about what skills I need other people to have that I need to work with. Um, So I'm not, you know, going, okay, well, I'll just get this friend or that friend to work with. It's more about what are the hats that they actually wear that they bring to the table that I need. And so I form and reform teams um, on that basis. And um, over the years, um, you know, I've become less involved um, clinically to the point where, you know, I'm very divorced from the clinical world these days. Um, and so a lot of my team is bringing clinical mouse to the table. Um, and and I really value that. Um, there's, you know, I, I'm very well-versed in statistics, and um, in particular, trial methodology. Um, but I've got a project that's qualitative at the moment. I'm not well-versed in qualitative methodologies, so I needed to bring somebody to the table who was well-versed in qualitative methodologies. And because we're talking to Marbu about their experiences of having venous leg ulcers, I needed that person to also, or another person, or other people, to. Be bringing um, tikanga to the table, Mm -hmm. and so that and and I wouldn't describe the project as kaupapa Māori um, research because it's not come from the need of Māori. It's come Mm -hmm. because I think there's a gap that nobody has yet worked with, which is the indigenous experience of venous leg ulceration, and in particular Māori. And um, I have the funding available um, to support that work and the desire to make it happen. But I needed to form a team around me that was going Mm -hmm. to really support that project. And that needed to be people who were well-versed in Maori research, well-versed in qualitative research, well-versed in tikanga. um, And that reflects the theme, which is predominantly Maori. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, as opposed to when I first did a trial, um, it was my first trial, so I kind of really didn't know what I was doing, even though I had a a grasp of the methodology, Um, but I situated myself in a training environment, the Clinical Trials Research Unit, um, to build the team around me, my supervisor... Um, for my PhD was one of the co-investigators. In fact, both my supervisors for the PhD were co-investigators. And I had a statistician. um, And plus I had, you know, uh, clinical players as well um, from the different sites that I was working with. Um, And, you know, I had people on board who really knew data management. Um, And, and, you know, so there were some people who were, what you would call named investigators who mm-hmm. were going to go on the paper and there was a whole bunch of people around me mm-hmm. who knew their jobs yeah. um, around data management for instance um, around the it that we needed to use um, uh, around database um, building um, who could do that work and weren't named on the paper were certainly their work was acknowledged so you know there's a lot more than just the investigators that goes mm. into a team. And uh, Alan McDiarmid um, said, you know, relationships are what research is all about. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big fan of that. You've got to manage those relationships yeah. and, and keep them healthy. If those uh-uh. relationships aren't healthy, the work doesn't progress yeah. in anything like the, you know, what manner you want it to, um, and might even fail.
0: Mm. Um, which I think it's is a really it? important point isn't it that you know you have to be able to get on with these people as much as you have to be able to work with them You know, the, they are still the sort of people you would want to go out and have a beer with or you know go out for dinner with um, as much as anything else yeah and you
1: know it doesn't mean that you don't have um, conversations where you you know um, raise <laughs> and 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 <laughs> talk about difficult mm. issues you know there might well be disagreements in terms of um, you know the some aspect of the project about what mm. is right um, and I, I think you know those those discussions are useful and informative mm. there have to be discussions um, there has to be respect between all the players if there's mm. not respect, And, and, you know, that's, for me, it's always grounded in understanding what skills they bring to the table. I respect those skills because they're not skills that I necessarily have. And, you know, even though I'm well-versed in statistics, if a statistician tells me something, that's their discipline. I Mm. listen. And, or if I don't know something, I ask the statistician. Mm. I will go, hey, you know, I I think you know, we've got this problem at the moment, which is we've got this trial, which is now suspended because of COVID-19. we We'd randomized five patients, but because we'd we'd suspended the trial, because research is a non-essential activity, unless it's COVID-19 related, um, we've got these five participants we don't know what to do with. We can't deliver the intervention to them anymore. So normally you would keep everybody in the analysis, Um, as in the groups to which they were randomized. But this is raising the issue of, hmm, okay, we randomized them, but we can't collect any information about them. Mm. So we don't actually know what happens to them and we can't deliver the intervention. Do we then keep them in the analysis or do we treat them as post-randomization exclusions? Now, Mm. I know that's a technical matter, but it's a technical matter that I will have a discussion with Mm. with the statistician Before I make a decision, because I'm the principal investigator, I have to be the person that makes a decision. I'll reference that to the trial steering committee and I'll talk to the statistician. And she's on the trial steering committee. Um, And and we might talk to the data safety monitoring board as well Mm. to get the view as to what's right in this really unusual Mm.
2: situation.
0: Mm. Exactly. Yeah. I know, having that team available to discuss things with, to plan, to sort out issues as they arise, and to support each other is, um, you know, half the fun of it, really, isn't
1: it? It is, it is. And, um, you know, I've been working with many of these people for, I don't know, 15 years or more. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, to me, is the success, is that we have a collaboration that has survived that length of time and has had some rocky, mm-hmm. Um, has had some bumpy roads to navigate, um, but still there is uh, a real respect between all the parties, a willingness to still be involved, and they trust me, and I think that's an enormous gift. Um, and I trust them, um, but I, I think that they—they're trusting me. It still surprises me, you know. I, <laughs> I, I love the fact that they do. But that they do, it's a, it's a surprise. <laughs> yeah. And,
0: and, and, and a gift. Yeah, yeah. And maybe we uh, shouldn't question that too much.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I know how flawed I am as a person. <laughs> so, you know, that's why it's a surprise.
0: <laughs> so maybe that's a good um sort of point to wrap up on. Um, and is there anything else you wanted to say? Um.
1: No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think the only thing I would emphasize is that research is always about curiosity um, and, you know, being curious about everything. Um, I mean, I'm acutely aware of what skills I don't have. Um, and I try and plug those skills. I'm trying to learn more about health economics at the moment. Um, just self-training it gets to the point where you know nobody can train you you've got to train Mm -hmm. yourself Um, and hopefully you do it right Um, but it's always about being curious what's the next question Mm -hmm. looking around you I mean it's 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 not a curiosity that's limited, limited for me to health. I'm curious about all sorts of things. Um, you know, I, I love gardening. I love watching insects. I enjoy watching my dogs play. Um, and that makes me curious about what their lives are like. Um, to the point that, you know, I'll, I'll read about the biology and evolution of dogs. Um, so, you know, it's always about being curious. Mm. Mm. Um, and I think that's what makes a good researcher, as well as you know all the training that you get um, in, in how to be a good researcher, and and the relationships that you develop along the way, and some of that serendipity. Um, you know, if what if what where would I be if I hadn't met Mick, Nikki Cullen? Where would I be if I hadn't been given a push by Mia Carroll or Marilyn Forer? Um, where would I be if? Um, you know, one of these road bumps in my research career had not my collaboration apart. Mm. Um, I have no idea. Probably nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> and and so, you know, I, I think I've been the recipient of an enormous amount of luck. I don't mm-hmm. think I've created that. I think I'm I've just been lucky. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, a nice way to finish up and thank you very much for your time today Um, and good luck with getting your project (laughs) going again after hopefully not too long a pause.
1: Yeah, well, there's another example of, you know, how I have to rely on other people. It's the Mm. DHBs that will signal when research becomes essential again. So I have to wait for them to say to me, hey, we can start up again, and Mm. then I can kick off. Um, So, Mm. you know, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) It's It's a weird and wonderful world.
0: It is at the moment. Isn't it? Thanks very much for your time today.
1: Hey, thank you, Rachel. It's lovely talking with you.
0: I hope you enjoyed that. Andrew is so passionate about research, making a difference, and growing the next generation of clinical researchers in order to improve outcomes. He was actually one of my supervisors when I did a PhD. The conversation about building teams, maintaining healthy relationships to progress your research and avoid failure I thought was really important. Thanks for listening. I'm so glad you could join us. If this is your first time listening, then welcome. Thanks for joining us. If you're a returning listener, then thank you for coming back. I hope you are enjoying this. If you have any feedback or suggestions I would love to hear them. What did you enjoy? Who would you like to hear from? And would you like to make a guest appearance? Please contact me by email and until next time I hope this proves to be critical to your success.